Greetings, church. Uh, Let's pray. Triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for the reading of your word and this season of Advent. May your Holy Spirit use this season to draw us to greater alignment to your heart, to your character. And God, because you have set eternity in our hearts, may you cultivate a deeper grasp of the hope that can only be found in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you know, uh, today is the first Sunday of Advent, and the word Advent simply means coming. Uh, It's this rich season with multiple aspects, multiple dimensions. Uh, Firstly, we celebrate the first Advent, the first coming, because Christ has come in the flesh. And yet we know that also things have not reached completion. And so, secondly, another dimension we wait in hopeful anticipation for the second Advent of Christ, which is his second coming, where Jesus comes not as a helpless baby in a manger, but as a reigning king. And so there's this tension of celebration and waiting in Advent. For this reason, you may not have known that Advent was traditionally a season of repentance. It's a season much like uh, Lent is to Easter, Advent is to Christmas, where we would have an invitation to prepare our hearts. As the hymn says, let every heart prepare him room to make room for Christ. And so over the course of Advent, we should be moving through uh, movements of celebration and hoping. Uh, And this is much like the rhythm of our daily lives as well. And so this Sunday, the theme of this Sunday happens to be hope. And so we have a brief outline on the screen of where we want to head today. First, we're going to talk about when hope disappoints us. And we'll see just how prevalent that is in day-to-day life and what um, these disappointments might signal to us. And secondly, in contrast to when hope disappoints us, we'll see that true hope is built on promise. And so what that means is true hope is built and it depends on the trustworthiness or the character of the person who gave the promise or who gave the promise. It's the quality of the promise keeper. And thirdly, we'll see that true hope provides light in the darkness, which is to say that hope, real hope, challenges the realities of the present moment. Hope informs and it transforms the current darkness that you and I might be navigating in this season of our lives. And lastly, true hope, and the the phrase, the qualifier of true hope, implies that there are false hopes. True hope will not lead us to disappointment. According to a poll by Mental Health Research Canada, and this is a poll from December of 2020, so about a year ago today, uh, people from all around our country are reporting the highest levels of depression and anxiety uh, ever recorded. Uh, This poll uh, found that 22% of surveyed Canadians reported that they had been diagnosed with depression and another 20% saying they received an anxiety disorder diagnosis. So I imagine if a similar poll was conducted, this is a Canadian one, but if a similar poll was conducted in the United States, for instance, or other countries around the world, I imagine that we're gonna see some similarities 
and this similar trajectory. There appears to be no shortage of trials, no shortage of hardships, setbacks, um, disappointments in life, in modern life today. And as a country, as Canadians, as individuals, you and I need hope. Hope is what sustains life. Hope is like an engine for our lives. Uh, so if you are experiencing depression, or, and if you're one of those 22% or, or one of the 20 that um, has received an anxiety disorder diagnosis, I would encourage you to reach out. Um, for my personal journey, I found psychotherapy to be very helpful. Uh, reach out to elders of the church. Uh, reach out for prayer and support from your formation groups. Uh, and, and reach out to myself. Just uh, I encourage you to reach out. You're not alone. Theologian Leslie Newbegin. This is a theologian that wrote a lot uh, 30 to 40 years ago. And he suggested even way back then that the West would become the most difficult missionary frontier of the world. And he said the West is going to become increasingly secularized. And this was 30 to 40 years ago. And so he said that as the West becomes more secularized, as more people abandon religion, um, this, their politics will kind of assume that spot. Politics would become the new religion. This is 30 to 40 years ago. And so the passion, the zeal, uh, the dogma that was once kind of religious qualities will be transferred onto politics. And so as those things transfer onto politics, the hope that was once found in religion would also shift to hope in politics. And you can see that all over your Facebook feeds, likely. You can see the extremism there um, from friends on the right and friends on the left side of the spectrum. And you can sense, uh, if you have friends on both the left and the right side of the spectrum, you could probably sense their deep disappointment when their preferred candidate loses. And even on the other side of the spectrum, when their preferred candidate wins, uh, over time, like clockwork, these candidates likely, in their perception, under-deliver. And so the hope that these people placed in their politics gradually turns into cynicism. Right? With enough disappointments in life, our hope gradually turns into I appreciated that Ashley was talking about pessimism because I have those spells as well, and Shelley will have to, I call it realism as well. Um, but Shelley will have to like remind me, um, this isn't what our hope is in, right? This isn't what our hope is in. And so in society, hope gradually devolves into cynicism as people experience wound after wound. And they, they hope in something and it doesn't deliver. This time last year, so about exactly a year ago, Boris Johnson, the British Prime Minister, he said about vaccines, vaccines will, quote, provide salvation for humanity, end quote. And while vaccines have done some great work, um, that is quite the statement, right? That he, see, he saw vaccines as salvation for humanity. And so with each disappointment in our lives, each paper cut, each wound, each time we've placed our hope in something and it doesn't deliver, uh, humans, we have a limited threshold, and we begin to lose hope in hope itself. Is this you? Right? You become a little bit more calloused. You find it harder to put your hope in something. You find it harder to trust people in general because you've been burned enough times. 
There's a New York Times columnist. I've quoted him over a number of sermons. Uh, his name is David Brooks. He's one of the most well-known uh, writers for the New York Times. And he was looking for language to describe sin. And because he writes to a very wide audience, most of whom are not Christian or have no exposure to Christianity, he was looking for language to describe what sin is, because sin has kind of lost its place in, in secular lexicon. And so he actually reached out to New York pastor Tim Keller, who is very well known to many of us. And Tim Keller gave him language for sin, and he called it disordered loves. Disordered loves, when we direct our love in all these wrong places. Right? And that language, I was listening to David Brooks on a podcast, that language gave me an idea about the places that we misplace our hope, our misplaced hope. When we place our hopes in people and things that can never bear that weight. And it ends up leaving us longing and yearning. And so a question for formation groups is uh, Pascal, who's quoted often in the Lisa Sharon Harper book, Pascal suggested that there's this God-shaped abyss, more commonly known as a God-shaped hole in our hearts. And the teacher in Ecclesiastes, like humanity, tried to satisfy that longing tried to satisfy it through pleasure, um, through knowledge, through achievement, and eventually recognizes that God has placed eternity in our hearts. Augustine of Hippo said that our hearts are restless until they find rest in him, in God. And so a question for reflection in formation groups or your own lives is, as you look at your life, what are the misplaced hopes that you can articulate in your own story? What are those wounds in where you were just longing, like, if only things were like this? And then you achieve it and discover that it still leaves you longing. So true hope is built on promises. This is the second point. The Israelites had centuries of rich stories of God's faithfulness. In De Deuteronomy chapter 6, um, it was ingrained in the community to repeat things over and over again to children. Talk about them when you're at home. Uh, when you're on the road, when you go to bed, when you're getting up, there's language about tying them on your door frames, uh, tying it around your forehead. Um, these, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, this, is, this context is they're talking about commands. Teach these commands to your children everywhere you go along the journey of life. But it can also be applied to storytelling because Hebrew culture would always tell their stories generation after generation. They would tell of the promise made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Um, the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, they would gather and, and tell them about God hearing the groans of Israel when they were in slavery, and God promised to deliver them in Exodus. Right? They would celebrate year after year that God rescued them from slavery. They would hear in Deuteronomy that God made a promise to them that he would give them Canaan. He would give them the promised land. He, he asks Josh to be bold and courageous, strong and courageous, because God will be with him always. These are the stories the Hebrew kid, the Israelites would grow up hearing. And so their, their life would be shaped by these promises. And again, here, the prophet Jeremiah is making a promise to the Israelites that even though 70 years will be spent in exile and captivity, that God's going to make a way and God's going to prosper them. And the Israelites could hold on to that hope because year after year, they're going through these rhythms, these feasts, these festivals, 
these Passovers, being reminded of the stories of God's faithfulness. Remember that uh, they would erect altars or they would uh, put up an Ebenezer stone and say, the Lord has helped us. That word remember uh, is used 237 times in scripture. It's this constant theme that they were to remember when God was faithful so that when they encountered trials, not if they would encounter them, when they would go through these difficult times, they would remember God's faithfulness. In our formation group, as we discussed chapter four, we were sharing about God's faithfulness. And it was a beautiful reminder to each of us how God has been there every step of the way. Every step of the way, and it helps us face our current circumstances with that same hope. The Israelites' hope was rooted in the character of God because of the quality of the promise keeper. God came through with them time and time again, and they had these sacraments, they had these moments to embed it into, weave it into their calendar. As we have Advent, as we have Lent, these seasons are designed to form us and remind us of who God is and what he's done. A question for reflection is that it's been said that our level of faith cannot exceed our level of hope. Have you heard that before? Our level of faith cannot exceed our level of hope. Doesn't that make sense? The characters of Hebrews chapter 11, that hall of faith, they walked by faith because of their depth of hope that they had in God. They had this hope and trust of God's character. And so their faith was so high because their hope was so deep. So an exercise is for you to recall those times of God's faithfulness in your journey, even now, how God was there, how you encountered him in junior high, maybe. I often bring myself back to August 25th, 2000, encountering God in a Denny's parking lot. It's these experiences that just root me in God's faithfulness, and it's helpful to remember it all the time. So how does the quality of God's character inform your hope in the present? And how do you endure your current circumstances? How does that trust in his character inform those things? So we remember how the Israelites waited centuries for the birth of the Savior, and we continue that tradition in now waiting for the second advent of Christ. And this waiting is not just passive, it's active, as we'll see later. The church calendar brings us through these rhythms of Advent, Lent, and Easter in order to build these um, altars in our lives, in a sense, to build these Ebenezer stones to remind us that God is always with us and always faithful so we don't turn to the counterfeit hopes that timeless and through history people continue to give their lives to wealth and to give their lives to achievement and to give their lives to fill in the blank and find that they ultimately are left wanting. Third, true hope provides light in the darkness. And so that true hope informs our present circumstances. It, it, true hope affects how we live in the present. This passage was written during the darkest and most traumatic uh, experience of Israel. Jeremiah, traditionally understood as the author of, of this book, but also the poems of Lamentations, he was known as the weeping prophet. And he was known as the weeping prophet because he was so deeply aware of how broken the world is. 
He was so aware of all the destructive patterns that people give themselves to over and over again. And he was crying out. And he was pleading with the Israelites to turn away from that, to turn away from that brokenness, to turn away from those disordered loves, to turn away from sin, and to turn towards God. And so this is a prophet who's deeply, deeply, simultaneously deeply troubled and deeply hopeful. Sometimes I feel like that's the call of Christians, to be simultaneously deeply troubled, but deeply hopeful. The historical context was like Lamentations. The Israelites were warned by Jeremiah. They're they're continually unfaithful, and now they're suffering the consequences. And so the armies of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, king of Babylon, he's advancing on Jerusalem. And in this chapter uh, 33, verses 4 and 5, we see that the streets of Jerusalem are soon soon to be filled with uh, bodies, death, corpses. And the prophet Jeremiah himself is imprisoned in verse 1 of this chapter by King Zedekiah. And so Jeremiah is in prison precisely because of all these bleak prophecies. And yet in this bleakness, he has this good promise. So to understand this passage more, we also have to know that one of the worst tragedies of the Babylonian exile was the seeming end of the Davidic dynasty. So for almost 400 years, descendants of David occupied the throne of Judah. And descendants of David, and God had promised that this would always be the case uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, next slide, please. Yeah, 2 Samuel chapter 7 and Psalm 89, we see that God had promised that there would always be someone on the throne. But in, in history, the Babylonians destroyed David's city. They burned Solomon's temple to the ground. And they took David's heirs into exile. And so the promises of God, and these specific promises, look to be completely dead. You can imagine, if you were an Israelite at the time, you would know that this is what's happening. And that would leave you in a state of deep despair. And so when everything seems lost, this is when Jeremiah says, verse 14, The day will come, says the Lord, when I will do for Israel and Judah all the good things that I've promised them. So imagine what Jeremiah, in the midst of all of that, in the midst of imminent collapse, when everything seems lost, and God's promise looks like it's dead, it's broken. He says, verse 15, In those days and at that time, I will raise up a righteous descendant from King David's line. He will do what is just and right throughout the land. From David's line, from King David's line. The city is sieged, the temple is destroyed, everything seems lost, David's heirs are gone. And God is still able to bring new life out of death. A branch will sprout. The prophet Isaiah uses this this language. Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. So out of death will grow new life. Again. Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. So Jeremiah and Isaiah aren't these people that are detached from the world. They're not people that wear rose-colored glasses and always see the best of things, right? That they are speaking out of the reality of the brokenness, out of the devastation of the current moment. Uh, Those of you, many of you know already that I love plants. Uh, I went from 117 house plants, now I only have 98. Uh, But uh, we've been giving them away because there's too much work. But all that to say, 
Over 15 years, I've been slowly cultivating this collection, and it was based on plants that removed the most toxins out of the air, the ones that were uh, approved by NASA. I even located them in ideal rooms because certain plants release oxygen at night, and so they're good while you sleep. Um, so all this as background to say that I take plants very seriously. And uh, one day, Shelly was on this plant swap group online, and she swapped one of our plants that we had a double of for a plant I was a beautiful um, version of a Chinese evergreen plant. And so I was very excited. It came home, and it started to die right away. And upon closer inspection, this plant was infested with bugs. And if you have 98 or 100 plants in your house, you would understand how big of a deal this is. And so essentially, what you have to do when that happens is you have to quarantine this plant. You have to isolate it. Um, you have to like spray it down and, and individually pick each bug off and examine everything. So as this plant is isolated, it slowly dies and dies and dies. Uh, new leaves fall off every day. I groan to Shelly and <laughs> complain to her, why did you bring this curse into our home? <laughs> and, uh, and then, as the plant looks completely dead, as there's no seeming life left, a new leaf will sprout. And I know this is a silly thing, but I get goosebumps when I think about plants. Um, but I do think about these promises. I think about Isaiah. I think about Jeremiah because God can bring new life out of death. And it's like he wove into the fabric of creation, into the fabric of life in these plants, um, a reminder that God is always faithful, that God can bring newness out of death. And Jeremiah's hope, like Isaiah's hope, comes out of God's character and God's promise. It comes out of a lifetime of reminding themselves over and over again how God is faithful. And Advent itself, I think by God's grace and design, uh, begins as we move towards what's known as the winter solstice. And so that's when the Earth's poles reach the maximum tilt away from the sun, and it results in what eventually becomes the longest day of the year. It's also known as the longest night. And so December 21st, that's when it happens this year. December 21st, night will begin at 3.59 p.m. So I don't want to depress you, but December 21st is the longest night of the year. And then we celebrate Christmas. And then each day, the light lasts a little longer after Christmas. I think that's really cool. And I, I think that's also woven into our church calendar by God's graciousness to show us that when we're at the darkest time of the year, that every day the light will be a little bit brighter. It's a reminder. And so finally, true hope, that, that statement, that qualifier implies that there are false hopes, does not lead to disappointment. Verse 16, in that day, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety and this will be its name. This will be her name. The Lord is our righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. So God is promising uh, salvation, safety, rebuilding of Jerusalem. The Lord is our righteousness. Uh, righteousness is one of those words that we use. We grow up, some of you may have grown up in church and this word is repeated so often that it might lose meaning. And so in certain contexts, when you hear the word righteous, you might even be thinking of your own righteousness. Or there are people that may distinguish themselves from sinners because they see themselves as righteous. But that's not what this is. Um, the city will be restored for all nations to see, 
and it will be called in Hebrew, Yahweh Sidkenu. And that Sidkenu word comes from the Hebrew word, root word, Sedek. And that means, so basically, on, on the, yeah, Yahweh Sedek. And Sedek means uh, straight or righteous. And that word appears in the Hebrew Bible over a thousand times. A thousand times, Sedek. So it's very important we know what that word means. And it's translated, depending on which passage, as right, as righteous, as righteousness, as just, as justified, as declared innocent. Um, but it appears a thousand times in the Hebrew Bible. And so what we know from that is setting things right, making things right, is God's business. That's God's job. We are made right by God by the shedding of Jesus' blood on the cross. That's not something we could accomplish on our own. God was making things right. So there's that vertical aspect of salvation that God made us right. He restored our relationship with God, or in biblical language, he reconciled us to God. But there's also a horizontal aspect where because of what Christ accomplished at the cross, we're also to be made right with each other. And so we're to be reconciled with each other. And we see that in the New Testament through new humanity. When you welcome the stranger, when you build bridges with people who don't belong, with lepers and uh, with sex workers and with all of these people in, in society that sometimes are othered, um, you are making things right. You're joining God in making things right. And so to be made right by God, being made in right, to be righteous is to act according to God's purposes. If you are to live righteously, you are to live according to God's purposes, to love, forgive, to reconcile. And so the Lord, Yahweh, is our righteousness, is to say the Lord is our right relationship. The Lord is our right relationship with God because he has reconciled us to himself, and it's our right relationship with each other. It's our right relationship with the poor. It's our right relationship with our families, with our strangers. It's even right relationship with zealots, right? It's, it's, it's having those right relationships with people who are very difficult to love. The Lord is our right relationship. We can't do things alone. But if setting things right, if making things right is what God does, if that's his job, then sometimes uh, you watch the news and you might wonder, like I do, where is God? What is God up to right now? When you read about all that's going on in the world, when we hear about a new variant, uh, when all of these things are coming, when there's so many injustices that fill your newsfeed, it's easy to think, where is God? What is he up to? How is he making things right? And think about all these Israelites who waited centuries. Imagine them hearing that a baby was born in a manger. Would it be really obvious to them that this is how God is making things right? Now imagine um, Jesus being declared as king during the triumphal entry, and less than a week later, he's declared as a thief. Would that look like God is making things right? And then imagine you're an Israelite, and you have waited for the promised Messiah for all this time, and you've seen your people go through slavery and, and you've heard of your people going through slavery and exile and captivity. And then you see your promised Messiah executed by the state on the cross. He was to come to overthrow Rome, 
and then Rome kills him. And guess who's still in power when Jesus is crucified, after Jesus is crucified? Rome. Imagine what they would have thought. Does that look like God is up to something? How it's, what God is up to is not often obvious, right? It's not often obvious. They wouldn't have known what God was up to because it all looks so foolish. A baby born in a manger, a triumphant king labeled a thief and then executed by the state. Jerusalem uh, will be called the Lord is our righteousness. In Hebrew, we often like say these words. Uh, Jerusalem actually means Yeru Shalom. Yeru Shalom. And that translates to they will see the wholeness. They will see the wholeness. Shalom, perfect peace. They will see perfect peace. Isn't that cool? Um, his salvation encompasses not just Judah and Jerusalem, but the whole world. This passage in, at the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 1, we see this picture. And this is one of my favorite passages. And I get extreme hope every time I read it. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Yerushalom, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. See that phrase right there, trustworthy and true. This is the quality of the promise keeper. This is the quality of the one who gives us this hope. Write this down. What I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said it is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. Yeru Shalom. They will see the wholeness. They will see the wholeness. That's the great hope that we have in Jesus. There's no better news than the gospel. Right? Ask, when we ask anybody what, what they long for, if they can just snap their fingers for the best possible outcome in life, some of them, I've asked them that question, they're like, I want a new job. And it's like, well, think bigger than that, right? Think outside of yourself. And eventually they might come to a place where they say something good, like, I would love for cancer to be eradicated, and it's still not big enough. Or maybe I would love if there's no more racism. That's still too small. The gospel's bigger than that. The gospel is all those things. So there's no better news that anyone yearns for. We just have to be God's mouthpiece and help people uh, see the goodness of Jesus. He's making all things new. There's no better news. That's the wholeness that he offers. And it's that hope that challenges the reality of the present. It's that hope that drove New Testament believers and believers today to be martyred. In 2021, there's actually more martyrs in Christianity than ever before. We don't realize that because of where we live. But people are dying because of the hope that they have. They're willing to give their life, dying trusting rather than living doubting because of how deep this hope is. I don't see many people willing to die for like CrossFit 
Right. Well, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> maybe there is. But it's, it's, they're willing to give their life up because their desire for this hope and this Jesus outweighs their desire for all else. Right? If you want to quit smoking, your desire to live a healthy life or to be there for your children and your grandchildren, all those things have to outweigh your desire for smoking. Right? It's the same thing. There's no better news. There's no, nothing better to yield our life to than God. And so God says, I'm going to fulfill my gracious promise. How is he going to do that? Verse 17, this is what the Lord says. David will have a descendant sitting on the throne of Israel forever. And there will always be Levitical priests to offer burnt offerings and grain offerings and sacrifices to me. And so in short, he's saying, like, I'm going to do this through the people of God. I'm going to do this through the people of God. I'm going to cause a righteous branch to spring up in your midst. Among the people, the people of God, I will make sure this will involve the community of God's people, right? Levitical priests, etc. So this isn't a call to the Israelites to sit back and wait for God to fix everything. Right? Sometimes we can hear the gospel and think of it as a ticket to heaven. I, mean, I could just like kick back and everything's going to be destroyed, but God will bring me to heaven. This isn't a sit back and wait for God to fix everything. This is an invo get involved with God. Right? It's an invitation to participate in God's unfolding, ongoing, transformative work of righteousness. Um, on the next slide, there's a picture that Ashley, Ashley Bradley sent me this week of the Barhaven Wednesday Formation Group. And I don't know where they are. It looks like a Walmart-type store. <laughs> uh, but they, she sent me this picture basically saying that the Barhaven Wednesday Group got together, and they pulled some resources, and they were purchasing pajamas uh, for the women's shelter in our city. I just think this is a really beautiful picture. And they, they ended up pulling together more resources. They're going to get together again to pack these uh, pajamas in, in, like, uh, to gift them and to pray over it, to pray over the items as well as they go uh, towards um, clients of that shelter. And I just think it's such a beautiful thing, but it's also a reminder. I wanted to share this as a reminder and encouragement to all of our formation groups to consider what we can do uh, to join God in the renewal of all things. Maybe a reminder to you as individuals. Uh, so groups can pool together resources and, and maybe even purchase clothes for the same women's shelter. I think our group is considering uh, partnering with Paula's uh, workplace to, to do something as well. But ask the Holy Spirit how uh, you can kind of participate with God as a group, as individuals this Christmas. Many of you have done Operation Christmas Child. And these actions and these presents, your presence, no matter how small they are, done over a lifetime, is what faithfulness to Jesus looks like. It's how you participate in what God is doing. So what are the ways that the Spirit will work through you to bring yourself and others around you out of that state of despair and exile and into that state of restoration and peace and hope? So a question for formation is, Jeremiah's declaration of God's promise provides an opportunity to reimagine the world being made right through, for God's purposes. So as you enter into Advent, ask the Holy Spirit, how can we participate in what God is making right in our homes? Maybe there's a Christmas meal that you're dreading because you're going to have that hard conversation with a family member. How is God going to use you as a channel to make things right? 
maybe cultivate greater humility in you. Maybe if, if, if you need to be the one to apologize, how is gonna God going to use you as a channel to make things right in your home or in your marketplace, right, in your workplace? God has uniquely equipped you. Uh, you God has equipped you in such a way that you were able to graduate with your professional credentials. And you are in a unique workplace uh, that many of us are not in, and you get to be God's presence there. And how does God want to use you in your neighborhood? So at the outset of the sermon, I talked about how hope is, is, in many ways, it's an engine of our life. It's what sustains life. It's what drives you. You can often tell what you hope for by what you dedicate your energies to, right? If you're hoping for uh, you're looking like Hugh Jackman, like I used to hope for, you would dedicate some energy to that. And it turns out I didn't hope too deeply to be that. Um, but you know, you can kind of sense what you hope for when you dedicate your energies to it. And so people dedicate their energies to politics. They dedicate their energies to all these things. They, they put salvation on the shoulders of, of people and things that just can't hold it, right? Uh, hope in wealth, hope in health, hope in your retirement. And these hopes, time and time again, end up with disappointment and longing. Lottery winners have a very high suicide, suicide rate. It's, it's even when people achieve everything they ever thought they wanted, they find that they actually lacked purpose. It was a poverty of purpose more than it was a poverty of material. So a uh, Portland pastor, one of my favorites, named John Mark, Hover, John Mark Homer, he says, quote, what if disappointment comes with a gentle invitation from the spirit to recenter our hope, that inner orientation of our heart toward the future and our energy for the present onto God, end quote. So in other words, he's asking, or he's suggesting that what if disappointment is actually a gift? What if our earthly disappointments are actually a gift to us? It's a gentle reminder from the spirit. It's a signal. It's a fire alarm, maybe, in our lives that act as a warning that we are placing our hopes on the wrong things, that we're placing our hopes on the wrong things, that these paper cuts, these wounds that we're experiencing every day, when we place our hopes into something, it's actually a fire alarm. and something trying to catch our attention. It's the Holy Spirit catching our attention that we're misplacing our hopes. Our hopes are placed on the wrong object. And in scripture, we've, we know in the New Testament that the devil, Satan, is portrayed as father of lies. The father of lies, the father of deception. Right? Satan can give us and give the world these narratives to live into. And, and year after year, generation after generation, it's the same narratives that get lived into for thousands of years. Right? Money, wealth, prestige. And, and this is always sold as the ticket of happiness because the devil is the father of lies. And Satan can take good things and he twists them to make them what you desire as the end, as the goal. And it leaves us wanting and it leaves us thirsting. Even people winning the lottery face such despair that they want to take their own life because there's nothing, everything they thought they wanted was given to them and it was still lacking. Ask the Holy Spirit, where are your misplaced hopes? 
Jesus came in the flesh. He lived among humanity. He was crucified by the state. He came and he went. The Romans were still in charge. Imagine for the Israelites, it looked like Jesus had accomplished nothing. Can you imagine the disappointment they would have felt? If this is the Messiah, then what is going on? And a few weeks ago, I preached at another church, and the worship leader was uh, playing a song called Waymaker. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with it. And in that song, Waymaker, one of the lyrics reads, quote, even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I can't feel it, you're working. End quote. And so in Jesus' day, all those that witnessed the crucifixion they, and they were, all those that were awaiting a promised Messiah, when they looked at Jesus being crucified, I'm sure they didn't see how God was working. And I'm certain they didn't feel how God was working in that moment. And it's us with New Testament lens that know what God accomplished in that moment. When he raised from the dead, he, he defeated sin itself and he defeated death itself. We can trust in our waymaker, right? We can trust in the promise-keeping God that we worship. And it's that hope, it's that hope that we are to be drawn to in Advent. I'm going to end with uh, the words of Paul in Romans chapter 5. Paul says, beginning in verse 3, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character, And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment. Paul knew that people misplaced their hope. Paul knew that people still chased wealth back then. They chased power. They chased everything that we chase today. And he was calling the Christians in Rome, this is the hope that won't lead to disappointment. When your hope is in Christ... It won't lead to disappointment. No one can steal your joy when your joy is in Christ. This hope will not lead to disappointment. Why? For we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us his Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. So this God-shaped abyss that we have, the Holy Spirit, God has given us his Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. And when the Holy Spirit fills that God-shaped abyss, that love will overflow out of hearts into um, sending clothes, right, to a shelter, into whatever the Holy Spirit would put onto your hearts, uh, how he might use your hands and your feet. This hope will not lead to disappointment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we, we often know these truths uh, and we come week after week to be reminded of these truths, but Holy Spirit, would you make that real in our hearts? Would you examine our hearts and reveal to us where we place our hopes? And Lord, if we, our hopes are misplaced, would you convict us in such a way May we see that these disappointments in our lives are actually gifts to us and gentle invitations and reminders to show us, to signal to us that our hopes are misplaced.
And Holy Spirit, help us reorient our hope in Jesus Christ. That he would be our treasure. That we would be able to fix our eyes on him who out of the joy set before him endured the cross. And so, Lord, your word reminds us that we are not our own. We were bought with a price. Therefore, we ought to honor God with our lives. And so, Holy Spirit, help us recenter and reorient our hope so that your Holy Spirit would fill that God-shaped abyss in our heart and that it would overflow in our love for you and others around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.